Hello and welcome to the Fat Tailed Thoughts podcast. Go. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Always good to be recording these on a Friday. Always good to be recording these Happy on a Friday. Happy Friday. So, yes. Um, big topic this week for the newsletter, Carbon Credits. We're on to episode 22, where we talk about the makings of fintech, money, cryptocurrency, and the wider markets in general. And I think that's where we get into carbon credits here, looking at this as a market and the structures and format of that market. So let's get the listeners orientated. I think there's three topics for today. We're going to go through a little bit of a sort of personal story and a connection point that you've got, which I think helps frame the overall discussion. We're then going to get into the market as it exists today. And then the final piece is the people doing good work in this space. So let's start with that story. Let's dive straight in here. Give us the perspective. I I thought uh, it came across really well for me in the newsletter. So let's maybe go there. It's 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 a great story, and and uh, I mean, I it's not mine to tell, but I'll tell it anyways. It's it's really uh, Todd Lemon's story and and Jim Prokonet. So 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 if we back up to two thousand seven, I mean, the, the the world's shortly thereafter. Of course, the world goes crazy. So so Todd in in a past life had been a, a sustainable uh, logger, sustainable forestry, and had done phenomenal work in that space, cutting down on waste wood. Um, dramatically reducing the number of trees needed to go create things like chair legs and and so on, and recognized that that there was a, an opportunity there. The fact that he could cut down on wastewood and 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 save the number of trees that were being cut down, he found an economical solution that aligned doing better for the earth with making more money. And there was a bit of a light bulb moment for him and said, how do I do this at scale? How do I do more of this? So, so 2007, Borneo. So Borneo is a bit of an odd island uh, in between the uh, Philippines and, and uh, Indonesia and, and next to Singapore and so on. It's actually jointly owned, jointly managed by three countries. So we're talking Indonesia, Borneo. There are that is among the oldest growth forest in the world. And it's particularly interesting forest because it's peat bog forest. So think peat bogs like you have in Scotland, low oxygen levels. So lots and lots and lots of stuff gets maintained there. It doesn't decay. It doesn't break down. It's simply there. It's fossilized over time. Well, as a result, if you burn peat bogs, you release tremendous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. It's all this old, old, old stuff, thousands, millions of years old, that's that, that's simply maintained in, in the bog. So the old growth forest in Borneo was being bought up by a palm oil plantation. Their plan, and they had already started by the time Todd arrived, was to raise the old growth forest to the ground hundreds of square miles of old growth forest to upend the peat bog and to plant palm oil trees so we can have palm oil in our our hair conditioner and whatnot. I mean, th- th- this, is, this is the antithesis of what you want to happen with a forest like that. So, so Todd partnered with, uh, created a foundation with Jim called uh, Infinite Earth. They partnered with uh, a group, uh, the, the Orangutan uh, Foundation, they managed to work with the Indonesian government. 
They managed to work with a standard called Red Plus that we'll talk about in a bit. They bought up a huge chunk of the forest, originally slotted to be about 350 square miles because the shenanigans ended up and only being 180 by the time it was done. But they bought up 180 square miles of forest that was slated to be turned into palm oil and instead turned it into the Rimbaraya Biodiversity Reserve. Now, within that reserve, you've got nine indigenous villages. You have uh, the now the largest privately funded orangutan reserve in the world. You have a tremendous volume, a huge mass of old trees, not just the living trees, but the dead organic ma matter that's in that peat bog that's now going to stay there permanently. So in return for buying up land that would otherwise have released the equivalent of 22 million cars worth of carbon into the atmosphere, the reserve gets awarded carbon credits every single year, what are called voluntary carbon credits. The reserve is able to sell those credits and the revenues go to fund clean water for the villages. It goes to fund uh, employment for those villages and maintaining and, and kind of husbandry in the forest. It goes to uh, the funding for the orangutan reserve. The, the, the carbon credits, just by maintaining that forest, by not burning it down, we now have an economical model where it's able to sell basically doing good for the world, which helps companies like Microsoft and others can buy to offset their footprints. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal model. But as we'll get into in a sec, this was years of effort. It's a phenomenal project, and yet it struggles today. And not be, not by any fault of Todd or Jim or, or Infinite Earth or the like. The credits they create, the good work they do, they're selling into fundamentally a broken market. It's broken's even too too generous a term. The market never existed. Mm -hmm. So not only are they having to develop a brand new project and a new way of of saving the world. They are they are fundamentally contributing to a more mature market, and that's work they continue today alongside a whole bunch of others that we'll get into. And this has been an arc through our conversation over the last few months about the small markets and how those markets operate, whether it's a market for watches, whether it's a market for NFTs, whether it's a market for carbon credits, whether it's a market for startup equity. There needs to be some fundamentals. There needs to be buyers. There needs to be sellers. There needs to be price transparency. There needs to be a level of quality for the good that's being traded. So, you know, if you buy it on a Thursday, it's the same as if you buy it next Tuesday. The good needs to have some inherent characteristics that are provable and sustainable within the market. So this is a Another one of the examples of the types of markets, there's markets for sneakers, there's markets for watches, you know, whatever these markets are, there's some fundamentals that need to exist here. And I think it came through in the newsletter for me, some of those fundamentals have been, you know, so we can talk about authenticity of Nike sneakers in a secondary market for sneakers, but I think there's a very obvious way to establish whether those are fake or not. And then if they're made by Nike, you know what they are, you know the characteristics of them, you can get some provenance and you can look at them. Same for my the market that I track around watches. I think the point, and, and this kind of long rambling set of sentences segues us onto the next 
point. How is this market structured? Because it came across for me that governments had tried to put accords in place. There'd been some sort of attempts to establish this market, largely failed. Private sectors tried to step in. Maybe describe the market, and you've you've touched on it already. Markets broken, great organisation doing great work, creating a carbon credit. If that carbon credit's not a sustainable one, but a sustainable unit that we can trust, then the fundamentals of the market struggle. It's so we we need to start with what are carbon credits and and build up into why that market mm-hmm. is so broken. So 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 at its at its most basic, a carbon credit is a tradable certificate that demonstrates a project has created additional emissions reductions. Typical a carbon credits measured that one ton carbon or one ton carbon equivalent. And, and let, let me just break that down because it gives pretty good clarity to, to why the market has been broken. So, so firstly, tradable certificate. Tradable means there's some place where you and I can exchange money for credits and credits for money. Certificate means that there's somebody out there an authority figure who says that's good, that's not. That meets a standard. So that means we have to have standards that exist. Additional means this is like this is like the ratings agencies defining debt and bonds, and you know this is triple, this is triple A, this is a, a B. You know this is somebody taking that type of role to be able to go. Well, that's a good carbon credit. That's not a good carbon credit. We, or we, some... we have this for, for any type of your, your exchange traded commodities. So, so you, you see it with corn. What, once you're above a threshold, we have a standard for what is corn. It's, it's sugar content, it's color, it's so on. And above that threshold, everything's just fungible. It's like, oh, I'm just getting corn. Below that threshold, well, we have grades. And then we have a, nah, sorry, it's, it's not eligible. So th- this, is, this is pretty standard stuff for, for, again, for any tradable good. So, so we have tradable, we have uh, certificates, which means we have standards and somebody auditing against it. Uh, we have additional emissions, meaning that project would not have existed were it not for the creation of carbon credits. So what, I, what that means is you don't get to be awarded carbon credits just for, quote, doing good that would have happened anyways. So Rimbaraya with the orangutans is a good example. It was slated to be sold off to palm oil. They, Rimbaraya, Infinite Earth, swooped in and changed the trajectory. That's why they're earning carbon credits for it. Uh, the last piece, carbon dioxide equivalent, there are lots of greenhouse gases. We've got basic equations that say one ton of, of carbon dioxide is equivalent to X volume of methane is equal to Y volume of, of take your pick of the other the other gases. So we did just simple equation. So, so to help understand the voluntary world, it, it's helpful to actually start with what are called compliance credits or regulatory credits, because that's as my father would actually call police power. And that that's what gives clarity to that market. So think about a place like California. California has uh, what's called a cap and trade program. We have this elsewhere, meaning for an industry, they'll say, and let's just make up round numbers, any business in this industry can produce up to 100 units 
of carbon output emissions. Well, if you go over 100, you have to buy credits from somebody who's gone under 100. That creates a market for those units. And the regulator overall can say, okay, this year it's 100 per, per, per company. Next year, it's going to be 95. Next year, 90. That way, they don't have to regulate individual companies. Instead, they can reduce the footprint of the industry overall. But what, what's so nice about that model, what we often take for granted is that regulatory body, that authority, they are the standard setter. They're the reason that there are certificates in place. They have the ability to fine people if it doesn't work. That's why my father calls it police power. It's they're in charge. They're an authority and they're imposing this structure on the market and their penalties if you don't, if you don't comply. Eventually, they'll just shut you down. There's a whole world, most of the world, that isn't regulated in terms of emissions. There's nobody coming in for the most part and saying, hey, Microsoft, you need to reduce your emissions, or hey, Etsy, you need to reduce your emissions, or hey, Salesforce, you need to reduce your emissions. And yet, Salesforce today is carbon neutral. Etsy is on a track record by 2030. Microsoft on a track record by 2030. It, they're doing great work already today. Etsy is... Uh, every shipment from Etsy, every order, the footprint of that is offset. That is a different market. They are choosing. It is voluntary. And they go out into the market and they purchase credits, among other things they can do. They purchase credits from projects like Rimbaraya. Now, the challenge with that market, there is no authority. There's no one stepping in who everybody has to comply with. So you have a very different market structure that's fundamentally demand-driven. It's not regulatory-driven. It's demand-driven by the Etsy's and the Microsoft's and the Salesforce of the world saying, I want to do good, and I want to do good in a real way. I want to buy high-quality stuff, not just whatever is available. I think the analogy here for me is imagine the stock market without the SEC and the NASDAQ and the FTSE and the Nikkei, you know, those are regulated markets with a police authority looking over them. Imagine that market trying to operate without that police authority and without that market maker, you know, whatever you want to describe it, the person who hosts that market. I'm not saying that the sales forces and the Etsy's and the Microsofts are obviously trying to do anything wrong. They're going into this with the best intentions, but they're going into a market without some of the fundamental structures of a market and trying to do the right thing. That's obviously really challenging. There's somebody in Salesforce, you know, probably the ESG leader who has got all the best intentions trying to execute a corporate strategy to do the best good wants to maybe probably drive in some internal projects to reduce carbon footprint in their data centers and choose suppliers accordingly. But there's obviously a carbon credit purchasing program going on there. What carbon credits are they buying? Are they the good ones? How do I know we're buying the good ones? What processes do I need to take as Salesforce to ensure that I'm buying the good ones? There's, there's friction points in that whole discussion, I think, that lead to, I think, the summary of this section of the, the discussion, which is this market's broken. Some of the fundamentals aren't in place. And if we look at hard numbers, 
the the so the regulatory side of this and and it it usually does start with regulatory if we go back in time 1997 we have the kyoto protocol um we have uh, a, a series we have the marrakesh accords we we have the daca daca agreement or daca accords we the, there are a series of these that happen and the, the short version the the most recent of course um, is the the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, and then the uh, uh, the Edinburgh was it COP 26. Um, the short version is the reason we keep doing this is because we still haven't gotten it right. The lead times for these because we're coordinating in the case of of COP 26 is like 200 countries involved, I and mean, it's pretty much everybody. The the coordination effort here is just absolutely wild. So you'll see things like 2015 Paris Climate Treaty. Article six talks about the market for carbon credits. That is actually just a placeholder in 2015. It says, we're going to do something. And then it's not until uh, this past year with the, the 2021 Edinburgh, where they actually go and write the, the implementation of how that market's going to work. I mean, you're talking six years later, and that, that's kind of standard cycles. And in that time, India, China, Africa, or you know, huge parts of Latin America are exploding with putting new infrastructure in place, building new factories. You know, it's not as if we can wait because we can wait, we can pause progress. Progress is happening at a lightning rate, and we're still trying to work out the fundamentals of the underlying marketplace to trade carbon credits. Okay, kind of glossing over the, the the individual details there, the private sector didn't wait. And uh, we, we had a series of competing standards in the private sector. Um, Vera seems to have won out. Uh, there's still four or five kind of major ones. Vera, as of this last year, what used to be called a verified carbon standard and since rebranded to Vera, um, is accounted for about 85% of the new credits this past year. But, but I want to be clear that's when we say standard, if I go to the world of corn, if I go to the world of oil, if I go to the world of nickel, standard means something very different there. If I get a credit verified by Vera in this past year, there are credits that trade at a 10x difference in price. If I go by, by geography, if I go... Uh, uh, category by category. So like if I compare, uh, say, forestry to uh, appliance credits, appliance credits are, are for like putting a, a, an old refrigerator out to bed and, and doing a, a more energy efficient one. We're seeing four or five X differences in price. That's not really a standard in the sense we think in, in, in kind of traditional commodity markets. Vera is what I would almost call baseline. Like below the Vera standard, I probably don't even want to look at the thing. But if it meets that standard, there's still a tremendous amount of due diligence for a buyer to do to determine what quality the good is, the credits are. Is it a good project? Is, is it being managed well? Is it likely to have longevity? There's a huge number of details that go into it that if you're trying to do good work as a sales force or whomever, that's an enormous burden. I mean, it's, it's deep, deep, deep expertise. You need to go do this. And it's an enormous hurdle to actually try and purchase them. That's a problem if you want to scale up this market. Yeah, it's a friction point. You wouldn't go and have that same amount of work, as you mentioned, if you were going to go and do nickel. 
if you're buying nickel on the commodity exchange and you know it's reached this, you're not having to then go and look back and go, well, which factory did it come to? And let me go and visit the factory and let me go understand their production line and which part of the ground was it dug out of and how did they refine it? You're not asking those questions when you're trading nickel on a commodities exchange. You know you're buying high-quality nickel. And, and I think that friction point for me was the biggest piece that this and some of the price variances that you talked about demonstrate that this market's not mature and not where it needs to be. So let's maybe pivot from here now. It's changing. I mean, that that's it, it, it's it's and this is this gets me really I, I, I'm normally excited about stuff. This gets me really excited The the market is changing. It is getting better. And I think the thing that came through for me in the letter was that you talked about it, that this is almost private enterprise that has stepped into a gap that governments have not been able to fix. It leads us into the second part of the, sorry, the third part of the conversation, which is if this market is going to be private company driven, what are those companies doing that good work? And you highlight some of them in the newsletter, but I think this gives us an opportunity to put some color commentary around that. So, so the place to start is, as I said, this market is, is largely demand driven. And, and the place to start with is we have seen a tidal wave of demand. And just to put hard numbers to this, the, the, the market size, the, the uh, value of, of credits transacted in 2021 was double the amount in 2020. Go all the way back to 2007, the volume of credits transacted in 2007 was almost the same within spitting distance of what was transacted in 2020, about $475 million worth of credits. So we had for a decade, this market was flatlined, nothing happened, and then it doubled in a year. That is wild. And what's driving that is all of these commitments from massive companies. I mean, let's just take one industry for, for a moment here that um, the, the, the International Air Transport Association, which is a, a, a trade group, a trade association for airlines, represents about 85% of seat miles. So uh, seat miles being uh, literally butts in seats that are flown. Vast, vast, vast majority of, of uh, the world's air, uh, air travel. IATA accounts for about 1.6% of the world's emissions, total emissions. They have committed to be carbon neutral by 2050. If nobody else, if nobody else did anything, and just them coming into the market, never mind the reduced emissions that they're going to do from more efficient planes, never mind all of that. By their own estimates, 20% of that offset has to come from purchasing credits like the ones from Rimbaraya. The amount they have to purchase is four times the amount that have been created since voluntary credits existed. That is one organization, four times the amount. The tidal wave of demand that's coming into this market is absolutely wild. And I, I mean, I met with the ESG lead uh, for um, Qualcomm recently. Huge wave of effort going into what they're doing. We're seeing Microsoft make pledges. We work with Amazon. They're doing a lot in this space. You know, so as you say, this is not just the airline industry. This is across the board numerous organizations you know standing up 
there's a point that says, are they virtue signaling when they make a commitment that's so far out? But I think we're getting past that point of virtue signaling where maybe in the when they were making these commitments in sort of 2020, it was, oh, we've got to be seen to be doing something because my three other competitors are doing something. So, yes, we'll make some statement. But I think now we're seeing CEOs and boards back into that. We're seeing ESG investing. You know, we're seeing some of these dynamics. Boards are getting asked, what is your plan to deliver on that commitment you made two years ago? Yes, it was marketing. Yes, it was fluff when you made it. But, hey, what are you doing? Maybe it's activist investors. Whatever it is, whether it's changes in customer buying behaviors, whether it's um, trying to raise capital, you know, bond issues, whatever it is that's driving this, I think boards are getting asked, what are you doing to make this real? And that's driving the demand that then comes into a badly structured, nascent market. That's the challenge. But that that tidal wave of demand and and the folks that are that, that and I would say most are taking it seriously has driven a, a a maturation of the market that that I don't think anyone could have anticipated. So so let's start back with the credits. We're seeing more high quality credits come on to the market. The folks that are making these demands, Coca Cola's made a commitment to net zero. Amazon's made a commitment to net zero. These are not companies that 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 want to do it as hey we're doing good for the world. And then show up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal funding some shenanigans that they didn't do their due diligence on. They are forcing high quality credits into the market. So uh, Todd and and the uh, the team at Infinite Earth spun up a, a sister company. Um, they're they're uh, launching a new project called Marvino. It's in Baja Sur, Calif- uh, uh, sorry Baja California Sur, Mexico. Um, and they are uh, in the process, the project will come live in, in the near future, of, of preserving uh, mangroves and the surrounding uh, seabed and, and a little bit inland that's currently being kind of destroyed by commercial shrimp farming. Um, again, fantastic project, whole series of, of endangered species that are there. I mean, wonderful, wonderful work. And just to give sense to, to what's going on behind the scenes, uh, Rimba, uh, Infinite Earth, their manage, ongoing management of the carbon credits in Borneo, actually got bought by a public company called Carbon Streaming. Carbon Streaming is a financing company. It's an investment company. They're, they're a public company. They do wonderful work. They buy up super high quality stuff like the Infinite Earth Rimbaraya project, and they go and fund the next issuance the next set of projects to create more i mean this the 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 model here is fundamentally the same as you would have a a miner or a logger or anyone else in the natural resources space but different than extracting stuff from the ground or, or cutting it down they are buying up and funding projects that that will spit off carbon credits for the next 30 years and literally what they're doing is they pay some money now they now they know they the economics are attractive for a thirty year run, and for the next thirty years they sell off those credits. It's a wonderful, wonderful model, and the economics now work because of that demand wave. That this is a very attractive business to go build, and the folks over at Carbon Streaming, I mean, hats off to them. They've been maniacally focused on 
not just doing it, but only doing it with super high quality stuff so that they build a brand around as a trusted partner to these companies. I think the takeaway from the just few sentences there is once you put a market in place, the incentive structures make sense. People see that they can make money, make money at scale, make money at scale over a period of time that they can start to predict. Then they can put capital to work to invest in that space, and that drives the cycle. So, I mean, we've got some very mature markets that are highly regulated with government oversight. This is the exact opposite of that scale, but it still proves you can build a market and you can get investment and you can build some of the structures that markets need. It's, it's, it's really well put, and it's exactly what we're seeing happen. What, what naturally happens as you kind of move up the chain then is, is you've, got, you've got the demand forcing more projects, more high-quality projects. You now have a specialization in terms of financing those and curating those from the likes of a carbon streaming. Well, if you're, if you're a Coca-Cola and you're looking to offset, you're IATA and you're looking to offset, well, now you need help identifying high quality projects. You know they're out there, the supply is out there, but you don't have that expertise in house. So you have startups uh, like Pachama, and apologies if I, if I uh, mispronounce that, they are curating a marketplace of high quality credits and they use satellite imagery and artificial intelligence and a lot of cool techniques that give companies, big buyers like a Coca-Cola, insights into what are the projects, here are high quality, here are the details you need so that, okay, I know it meets a standard, but that's not good enough. Now I have the data from a, a down-selected group with a trusted partner like Pachama where I can go and buy this stuff. Watershed just raised a, a $70 million uh, round. They're going a step further. They are doing that end-to-end -end managed carbon program, managed climate program for big enterprises. So not only are they going through and saying, hey, look, here's a marketplace and we'll help you purchase them. They're going truly, truly, truly end-to-end -end here. So what it allows them to do is, is first, you've got to audit your footprint. Like, what, what do we actually produce? Go figure that out. Secondly, you need to go and uh, reduce your emissions, like, Credits are good and they're, they're a wonderful way to do it, but there's probably other stuff you could do to help mm -hmm. make your data centers more efficient or what have you. Then with the leftover, the remaining amounts go and offset that, that footprint. And then critically, and this comes back to the public image, go and report on this stuff. I mean, it's, it's an end-to-end -end managed program in a single application. What, what's critically important here, and it cannot be overlooked, and Stephen, it comes back to the really good point you made about creating markets and capital flowing in, within the watershed program is the ability to manage a portfolio of carbon credits. Mm -hmm. well, within the Coca-Colas of the world, within the, the, these companies that are buying them, they're going to start buying credits to offset their footprints. Then they're going to find out that they, that they develop really deep insights into high quality versus low quality, into the trading patterns, into things that are mispriced. And they go, hey, wait, we can start trading these things the same way we do stocks or bonds or any commodity, and we can make money as a trading desk. Now, that is not organic demand to, to 
to take this down. But that creates liquidity in the marketplace. That creates buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. And now you start to see the evolution of normal market structure that makes it easier for, say, everyday people like you and me to go in and purchase as a small buyer and, and offset our footprints. Well, you end up with better liquidity in that market, leads to better price discovery, leads to better quality, leads to secondary markets, derivatives, all these things that sort of neat markets need to be efficient at scale start to come to play. Well, I've got to start to bring us home. So, so there's one there's one last piece because I want to tack it on right at the end here, which is we're starting to see it. It's mm -hmm. it's so expansive, um, expansive and CBL were the two biggest voluntary carbon exchanges in the world. They merged in 2019. It's now uh, under the, the brand name Expansive. They, they're, uh, they took uh, about 40, 45, I believe 40, 45% of the market uh, by value and, and about a third by volume. They're, I mean, to, to say it's skyrocketing, every graph they put up every quarter is up and to the right. The number of participants, the number of trading firms, the amount of volume, the amount of value, it is absolutely awesome. And critically, Stephen, on that pathway to creating more efficient markets, in fourth quarter of last year, they launched the first futures product. And that's awesome because a futures product different than the spot market allows a firm to buy tomorrow's credits. So I can decide on a price today, I can hedge the price of that tomorrow, and that allows me to start planning rather than to be subject to the day-to-day -day fluctuations in price. And this is, I mean, this is 101 of how you make robust markets. And we're, I mean, the last couple of months, we are just starting to see this. And it is so wildly exciting for the future of this market. I think that's the key takeaway. And I'll use that as the way to wrap us up. For me, when I look at markets, whether that's Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, ETFs, whether you look at ETPs, as we should accurately call them, that get called the ETFs. Some of these secondary steps show the, the value of these markets and show the evolution of these markets. Well, wrapping us up here, you've been listening to the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast, where we, every week we bring you the structures, makings of markets in fintech, crypto, and the wider market as as it exists. If you like the show, please click and subscribe. Please tell your friends about it. We're trying to build something here. And we'll see you next week on the Fat Tail Thoughts podcast. Thanks very much for listening.